Hey everyone, and welcome back to Pucks and Pages. My name is Steven, that is my book-loving wife, Liberty. We're a married couple with different interests, and we try to drag each other into our hobbies by discussing the latest news in both books and sports. And based on the introduction, it's a wild guess that today is the book episode. We are recording early and editing early because we're going to be gone for sports-related stuff, so this might be very slightly behind the times. But I am going to try to keep it short, sweet, to the point. Hallelujah, because we're recording late at night and sleep sounds like a great thing right now. Yes. First up in the news is that Emily St. John Mandel's post-apocalyptic pandemic novel Station Eleven is getting adapted for HBO Max. You should be proud of me. I actually have heard of this before your notes came out, and I was like, ooh. Well, the trailer came out this week, so I wouldn't be surprised if you saw it somewhere. Yeah, the YouTube's threw it in front of my face at least a dozen times. Yeah. The 10-episode series is described as a post-apocalyptic saga spanning multiple timelines that tells the stories of survivors of a devastating flu as they attempt to rebuild and reimagine the world anew while holding on to the best of what has been lost. I feel like this is something that I would A, enjoy reading, and B, enjoy watching, so... I think you would enjoy watching it more than reading it. I don't know that you would enjoy reading it at all. Having read it, it's very character-driven and less plot-focused. It's told in a dual timeline. One is as the pandemic is starting, like, they're just releasing news reports that so many people died on the first day from this flu. And then it moves back and forth between that timeline and, like, so many months and years later. So kind of like how The Walking Dead goes for, like, the first couple episodes. It's like a little bit of both. I've never watched The Walking Dead and uh, have no clue what you're talking about, but sure. It's it's similar-ish. The show was originally announced back in 2019, but was affected part of the way through production when the real-life pandemic hit, which might have been too meta for the people working on that show. I don't understand why. It'd be a great experience. You're preparing for your own plot points. The show recently released the trailer and announced that it will hit HBO Max on December 16th. Himesh Patel is set to play Jivan, or Jivan. Not really sure how this is supposed to be pronounced, but I believe this character lives in the French-speaking part of Canada. Okay, interesting. While a young Kirsten is played by Matilda Lawler, and an elder Kirsten is played by Mackenzie Davis. And that, again, is because of the two timelines that the story is told on. That's probably pretty important to have two actresses for that. Right. Part of the narration for the trailer says, there is no before, only now, which feels a little too fitting right now, like just a little much. But I'm excited to see this. I really enjoyed reading it. I was a weirdo and like this was sitting on my TBR shelf when the pandemic hit. And so I read it in like the first month of the pandemic. And like there were some things that were like, I can't believe this was written in the before times because it just, it hits it too well. And I don't know how you could know these things without going through an actual pandemic. Well, the reality of it is, is like there's all sorts of game theory that's been played out for like pandemics and science and vaccines and things like that so like there's material to base it off of and well but i'm speaking specifically about how people are acting and behaving and less to do with well this is most likely going to happen and then this structure is going to fail us and all of that i'm talking about how people 
act with each other and how they treat each other. So and like the psychology of it a little bit. More so than like things failing and the world changing. Got it. Got it. Got it. And I'm actually going to jump further down in my notes just to let you know so you're not too thrown off because another trailer has come out this past week. The trailer for the film adaptation of Sally Thorne's 2016 novel, The Hating Game, was also released this week. Lucy Hale will star alongside Austin Stowell in the film as two co-workers who experience hate at first sight. When Lucy and Joshua are up for the same promotion, their dislike for each other only strengthens. The movie is currently set to premiere on December 10th in theaters. And I said that while the trailer was cute, I don't think that I could watch this movie. A common complaint about the book itself, like the source material, is that it doesn't seem like a hate to love. It's more like, here's a common misunderstanding, so we just don't really like each other, turned into like an overly sexual romance. So like, no thanks. This asexual doesn't want to go sit in a theater and watch like sexy times happen on a screen. With a bunch of other people. You got to think they probably dropped it down a little bit from what the book was because, like, you can get away with more in books than you can in, like, a movie, I feel like. That's probably the case, but, like, a major, like, plot point, like, the catalyst for her feelings turning romantic is that she's hating him so much in real life, but, like, secretly attracted to him or whatever, so... When she's dreaming at night, she's dreaming about having sex with him. And that's, like, one of the main catalysts that turns her towards, like, admitting her feelings. Gotcha. So I feel like you have to include that. At least something And on top of that, that part was actually in the trailer as well. So, like, yeah, it's going to be sexual. So then we know that it's going to (laughs) exist. And I think for me, a problem that I have with the romance genre and their use of the enemies to lovers trope is that I don't want it to be like a common misunderstanding, like a workplace misunderstanding or like I can't have feelings for you because we're competing for the same job. I want it to be like, I absolutely hate you with everything I have in me and you're the antithesis of everything that I am and I cannot stand you. And then when you fall in love with that person, suddenly, like, you also hate yourself because, like, I'm not supposed to have these feelings for them. I can't believe that this is happening and, like, they've wedged themselves into my life. And that's not really what this is. So what you're saying is we don't have a hate-to-love relationship? No, we don't. Oh, okay. All right. Glad we settled that here. Though you are a Republican and I'm a Democrat, so kind of. Yeah. A little bit. And somehow we're happy together. Please don't sue us. I know that's a song, copyright. That was a small enough sample. I think we're fine. Okay. And I don't know that anyone could call that music, but that's that's a conversation for later. I don't claim to be a professional singer by any means, so we should be okay. And the last bit of real news coming out for this week, or the shortened week that we have, is that the Justice Department is suing to block a $2.2 billion book publishing deal that would have reshaped the industry, saying that consolidation would hurt authors and readers. Penguin Random House, who is already the largest American publisher, wants to buy New York-based Simon & Schuster whose authors include people like Stephen King, Hillary Clinton, and John Irving. The Department of Justice filed an antitrust suit in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia on Tuesday, November 2nd, saying the deal would let Penguin Random House, quote, exert outsized influence over which books are published in the U.S. 
and how much authors are paid for their work. I feel like this is kind of a similar situation to like my industry where like certain manufacturers try to buy up as many companies as they can get their grimy hands on. And so like, I kind of understand it. They're trying to stop this from becoming a monopoly, which it clearly is very close to being. Right. And I feel like some of the main points to come out of this happening is that there's less of an ability for authors to get their works published because they would have too many hands on those controls. Right. And then also they could set the price for books and they could raise it however much they wanted. The purchase of Simon & Schuster would reduce the big five publishers who are Simon & Schuster, Penguin Random House, HarperCollins, Hachette Book Group, and Macmillan down to four. The Authors Guild, which is a writer's organization, has said that it opposes the acquisition because there would be less competition for authors' manuscripts. Penguin Random House proposed acquisition of Simon & Schuster follows decades of consolidation in the publishing industry because, as you probably know, Penguin and Random House were two different things at one point in time, and they themselves merged less than a decade ago in 2013. Yeah, it's kind of insane to try to put one of the big five in with another member of the big five. Like, it's just, that's not okay. Well, and like, all publishers have these different imprints that have specific genres that they tend to do a lot of. And I feel like losing control over that with Simon & Schuster getting merged into Penguin Random House just means that we could lose a lot of genre fiction that... I feel like people still love to read. I feel like there's a reason Penguin would want to acquire another company. So I feel like people are still reading the types of things Simon & Schuster publishes. So I'm really hoping that the lawsuit holds up and that they don't get to buy Simon & Schuster. I don't know. We'll have to see how that shakes out. The reality is it can go all the way past that point to where like the government can literally just be like, no. So if it comes down to bypassing this, like there are other steps, but like... I mean, it's sort of tricky at this point. And not a lot of antitrust lawsuits happen nowadays, despite the fact that maybe we should look at Disney and some other people like that, but that's a whole other thing. Like Amazon or Microsoft or Sony or any of the other companies that are just enveloping like video games groups like everywhere. Right. So that's why I think we'll have to wait and see what happens because there's so few of these suits that end up going actually to court. Yeah. And then in the tag section, I thought we would do the books I do and don't want to read. Book tag. Yes. And for mine, I specifically took all of the books from books I already had on my physical TBR. So I didn't include books I've already read or books that I have on a TBR that's not something I already own. Fair. I was all over the place. And some of them I didn't quite come up with answers for, but one of them I did include a question for you as to what you would recommend. That'll be fun for me. we'll get there. For the first question, it's, what is a book you feel the need to read because everyone talks about it? So the one that I kind of put up there, I I feel like at least all of the BookTube people I watch, and now that I'm slowly delving deeper, deeper into Bookstagram, anything from Grishaverse just seems to be like in my face all the time. I can't avoid it. It's just there. And I feel like we're on like the tail end of that. Yeah. Just because like 
there were so many books out. I feel like this isn't the height of their popularity. I feel like that was a few years back when I first got into them. Yeah, and so the reality of it is, is like, there's just so much that, like, I, I'm not planning on tackling that challenge for many, many months from now, if at all. Right. Because, like you said, there's a lot of books. Well, and I'm looking at my shelves right now. Yeah, there are currently nine books out. That's what I thought. With an option for a tenth one to come out, like, the way the last book ended, there could there's be a another one. Got it. But I haven't heard anything about another one so far. But it's also kind of like you have to decide what order you want to read those. But I definitely agree that it's been pretty popular. For me, I said Jade City by Fonda Lee. People have pitched it as like a fantasy, not mafia, but kind of mafia, like kung fu book. It's like mafioso a little bit. And then like with like Jackie Chan kung fu or like what are we talking? That's just how I've heard someone describe it. So, like, I have no idea. Basically, all I know about Jade City is that the people who control the Jade market have all the power. And that it's something about, like, families who have power and stuff like that. I really don't know. But this has been such a hit from the very first book that I had to put it onto my physical TBR shelf. Like, I have to see what everyone's talking about. That's kind of fair because I feel like I've also heard a lot about that book. And again, in the Instagram world, it has a very nice cover. So it does get quite a few appearances. Yeah. So. The next question is a book that is really long. So it can be a really long book you want to read or a really long book you don't want to read. So I picked one that I've already read and clearly I didn't read the tag title very well. Good job. Well, you don't um, want to read it again, probably. You're right. Uh, well, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, I put Harry Potter in the Order of Phoenix. It was the longest book I've read. So, like, that's the one I put. It was, like, 840-something pages long. It's 870 pages. Oh, but... okay. My mistake. Maybe I read Goodreads wrong. Well, I've read it pretty recently, so. Yeah. For me, one that I do want to read and is on my shelf is Leviathan Wakes by James S.A. Corey. This is a tome by definition since it sits around 600 pages. It's not the longest book I will have ever read, but at the same time, it's a sci-fi. So if it gets really complex in the science fiction part, it could be really dense. So we'll have to see next year what I think. The next question is, what is a book that you own and have had on your TBR for too long? So technically the only one that that would be, like the longest one that I think for me and in a couple of the tags, we've talked about this because this question comes up in a lot of tags, is the Foundry Side trilogy. I have the first book. I'm ready to dig into it. Um, you haven't had it that long, just since like July. That's the longest book I've had, like out of the others. Like the rest of like the comics and stuff, they haven't been around that long. Well, and I also run into this problem with this question because at the Beginning slash middle of the year, I was working on clearing off all of the oldest books on my TBR. Like, that was my challenge for the year. So, anything I have on my TBR is less than a year old. But for me, I said Spellslinger by Sebastian D. Castell. It's technically been on there longest, but I only got this book in January. So, like, less than a year. What is something you feel obligated to read? Whether it's a required reading for school, a really popular classic, something everyone says is a must read for your favorite genre, stuff like that. I didn't really have one for this because I don't know that I've really truly established like a favorite genre yet. 
I obviously am a big sci-fi nerd, so like I think you my alley. I think you more have a pace that you prefer rather than a genre you prefer. I think you prefer books that are quick and like you feel like they have a point and that they're not meandering. That's fair. Yeah. But I don't think that's a genre per se. It's not, but you have a pace preference. For me, I said I was actually going to go with an author instead of a book because I don't feel like there's a specific book that is required. But I've been told by so many people to read Tamora Pierce. So I have one of those books on my TBR. The one that I currently have waiting for me to read is Terrier, which is, I guess, one of the starting points you can have with her books because I think she's similar to Terry Pratchett in that you have to have somewhere to start you can't just pick up anything what is a book that intimidates you I thought you were gonna say imitates me and I was like yes which one is that I'd love to know that book but intimidates I don't really feel like that intimidated by really any book per se like even when you hand me bigger books I'm like all right let's do this like I I'm just that's kind of my personality though I'm sure there's some on the list that you have scheduled for me that should probably intimidate me, but as I don't have that list in front of me, I can't really be like, wow, I'm scared of this. Mine is The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandra Dumas. It's a long classic novel. It's about revenge, but like it's over a thousand pages, so that's scary, but also it's a really old classic that a lot of people have had to read for school, so like, yikes. But it is on my list of 40 books I want to read before I turn 40. And so I'm just going to consider it like a challenge. And I'm going to set page counts for each day. And hopefully I can just work my way through it. Sounds like the best method to that madness. Yeah, it's a lot. What is a book that you think might be slow? I wrote any romance book. At least for me. Like I feel like I, A, would read it slowly and B, like it would just take time for me and I don't know that I would thoroughly enjoy it necessarily. Well, I think it's not necessarily that romances are slow because there are some that are pretty... Oh, fast-paced. Quick-paced. I think it's more along the lines of like, you want action, you don't want romance, and so it's going to feel slow to you. I'm okay with a little bit of both. It's just like it can't be... Just romance. Yeah. Yeah. I said The House on Infinity Loop by Bonnie K.T. Dillabow. If that's the correct way to say that, it's a YA science fiction novel that looks like it's going to be character focused, which is a slower novel generally, not just like in my opinion, but for the most part, most people would think it's slower. What is a book that you need to be in the right mood for? If I had to do a reread of Harry Potter, I feel like that would be the one that would be the right mood because like I realized that there were days where I just wasn't in the right mood when I'd pick it up and I just hated myself. And it very well could have been the books individually that I was reading from the series, but like there were times where it was just like, man, I am not in a good mood and this is putting me deeper into a funk. Well, I get that way anytime I read Order of the Phoenix because it's just like a constant crap fest for Harry. Yeah. And then someone who was one of my favorite characters dies and I'm like... Okay, so I get to just experience all those fun emotions all over again. Yeah. So I get that one. For me, I said probably just going off the books on my physical TBR, Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne-Jones. This is some of people's favorite books. It's what inspired a Studio Ghibli film, and 
you know, having watched a Studio Ghibli film now, like I watched my first one for Halloween. It was so good. It was really good, but I realized, like, I need to be in, like, a certain mood for, like, this type of fiction. And if I'm not, then I'm just not going to enjoy it because I feel like there's certain levels of, like, absurdism or, like, you just kind of have to accept it at face value. And if I'm not in that kind of mood, if I'm not feeling, like, happier or if I'm just not being silly or whatever, I'm not going to want to read something that's really absurd. Yeah. And for the last question, what is a book you're unsure you'll enjoy? I had a hard one this. Um, I I really don't know that there's a book per se on the list that I'm not going to enjoy. Like, there was the one John Green book that you had me read, and I was kind of like, meh, about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure John Green's just not for you, but I wanted to adventure away from, like, all of the fantasy and science fiction. Understandable. Like, you gotta give me a taste of some of the other things, otherwise nothing is ever going to go anywhere. And I'm not saying that I even hated that book, it just wasn't my cup of tea per se. So anything by John Green is your answer? I don't want to say that because I'm sure there's stuff that I'm going to enjoy, but it's just like, I don't know. Just was, again, my cup of tea was not served in that book. I said Across the Universe by Beth Revis. It's a 2011 YA science fiction slash dystopian novel that could very well suffer from being of its time, like a lot of books from around that point but I'm just gonna kind of have to wait and see the cover looks very like boy and girl romantic and maybe that'll be done well but I'm not expecting it to be so we'll have to just see as for what I've been reading speaking of dystopian novels I read Unraveling Eleven by Jerry Chisholm it's a net galley read that comes out on November 16th. It's one of the ones that I got accepted for very late into October, so I had to read it real quick. Like I said, it's a YA dystopian novel. This one is book two in the Eleven trilogy. I ended up rating this three stars, which is less than what I rated the first one earlier this year. This one takes place immediately after the events of book one. We see the fallout from what happened when Eve Hamilton left Compound Eleven. In the first book, we see a tyrannical government and what happens when one girl challenges everything. Personally, I really felt like this suffered from second book syndrome. There was a lot of going back and forth and not a lot of things actually happening, but it had to also set up things for the last book. So it was just okay. Like it was good, not great. It didn't feel like just a filler though. I imagine it was trying to set you up for some kind of climax, hopefully. Well, like I said, it did try to set things up for the later book, but at the same time, there was a lot of filler because I can't explain with getting too far into spoilers, but like something from book one got turned back around. And so like we went through all this stress and emotion at the end of book one to get to this point, but then we kind of just went right back to where we were. So it was like back and forth and it felt a bit pointless. I think the author didn't know exactly what they were planning on doing with the rest of the series when book one got published is how that comes across. Got it. And so they had to figure out, well, what do I want to happen by the end of the series? And then, okay, I stopped here. So how do I get it to there? And it had to backtrack from book one a little bit. And I didn't enjoy that. It ended up because of all of that, making it feel like the main female character didn't know what she wanted, 
because it was so back and forth for most of the novels. So that wasn't great for her character development, at least. And then the other book that I read in the less than a week we've had since we've recorded last is Starsight by Brandon Sanderson, which is a 2019 release and a YA science fiction novel. This is book two in the Skyward series, and I originally rated it 4.25 stars. I just finished this today, and I still stand by the 4.25, despite what I've heard people say since I finished this book originally about it. I take their criticism and I understand it and I get what they're trying to say, but at the same time, I feel like there's a point to everything that they were complaining about. And I'm trying to say this in the most vague way possible because you've only read a third of it. I was going to say, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. But at the end of the first book, Spencer discovered some truths about her father and herself, and now Spencer has to go to the ends of the galaxy in order to save humankind. And that's as vague as I can be about the synopsis. There were a few things when I was reading this that I had completely forgotten happened, so it's really good that I reread it before Cytonic comes out and before I read the novellas that come out before Cytonic. There were a couple of points that I think I agree with my previous review about where the pacing was a little weird towards the end and it felt like everything came to a conclusion too quickly and that sort of thing. But I'm sure we'll talk about it more when you finish the book. Gotcha. I don't know what to take from that, but I'm, I'm ready to move on to the second third. Like, it's just like, let's go right now. As for what I plan on reading next, I plan on picking up fail safe by Tracy Hunter Abramson It's a 2015 release and an adult suspense slash romance novel that was written by a woman who used to work for the CIA and who now writes novels. Okay. She doesn't write about things she did in the CIA, hopefully. Well, I feel like she's vague enough that you don't understand the ins and outs of the CIA. Got it. But this book features a woman and her father who use their farm as a cover for their work with the NSA protecting a team of undercover agents. And this whole series looks like it's action-packed government agent type of stories, but there are also, like, romances happening at the same time, so. Okay. I'm telling you, romance is, like, a very varied genre. Okay. Very varied. You can do all sorts of stuff in romance that I feel like you can't do in other genres. And the second one that I'm hoping to read this week is Sunreach by Brandon Sanderson. This is a new release from September It's a YA science fiction novella set between books two and three of the Skyward series. This one is told from FM's perspective following the events of book two. And I feel like going into depth on the synopsis before you actually read book two is going to be spoilery. So I'm mostly just going to leave it at that. I am excited to get into the perspectives of the people from the planet Spence is from because... So is that what the novellas are? Is just like perspectives of different people? It's other people's perspective. Um, Sunreach is FM's perspective. And Redon is going to be the perspective of the person that she took the identity of in the second book. Okay. I think that's vague enough for you. Yeah. And those are pretty short. I'm assuming I'll have time to read something else, but to be completely frank, I don't know what that's going to be. Yeah. Usually I don't read when we travel, so that's taking about two days 
of time away well, from my ability to read. Well, especially and, considering our trip is going to be so, like, under the gun. Go, 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 go. So Right. We're going to basically be gone for 36 hours or less. And so I don't know that I would find time to read. If you do, I will be thoroughly impressed. Maybe, like, right before we go to sleep the night before, but, like... That's probably about it. Yeah. So we'll see what else I can fit in there. I might go pick up the next volume in the Lumberjanes. We can figure out where to pick it up at. If I can find someone who has it. Venture away from the house for the Lumberjanes. But in the news of what I've been reading, as we've already discussed, like, less than maybe two minutes ago. Maybe a little longer than two minutes ago. Probably. Your sense of time is a little off, but yeah. (laughs) In fairness, I worked for almost nine hours today, and I'm here for you guys, so. Respect me or else. Or I quit. Yeah. I read the first third of Starsight. Yes. And it's been really good. Now, I have a question for you. Well, first I have to check and remember where you stopped. Okay, I know where you stopped. One of the major complaints that I've seen people have is that we see Spensa in this one start out on her home planet and then go somewhere else. And some people have complained because they spent one whole book learning about all these other characters and learning to love them and that sort of thing. And then it's just, just like, set bye them guys. Aside. Yeah. Deuces. You get like two scenes with them and they're like, bye, Felicia. So, how do you feel about that so far? I'm not really bothered by it, but I'll tell you, I definitely thought about that thing happening. So I was right. like, cool, I just met all these people, and they're expanding outside of the... Oh, and we're done with that process. Right. So, like, I get the frustration for that. I really do. I understand it. I feel like this might be part of what stimulated the novellas. Probably. Because... We are getting FM, who's one of the people left back on the planet when Spencer leaves. Alonic, I assume, if you're saying that's the person that she takes the identity for. Well, I was talking about FM's yeah. perspective in Sunsight. Yes. Yeah. Sunreach. I don't know why I put those two together. I was waiting for you to say Sunset. Sunrise, Sunset, Sunreach. Yeah. But also, Alonic is the second in Redon. But we loved FM. I assume you also loved FM. I thought she was great, yeah. So I feel like that's why she got a book. Yeah. Or novella. And then I think... Alonic is getting one just to kind of give you a little more backstory, probably between the humans and their race, I would imagine. I'm assuming so. And, like, maybe they're able to finally contact their home planet and be like, so something happened. And scene. Yeah. But there was a lot in the beginning that I'd forgotten about because when I was thinking back on this, because this is the first time I've reread this book, when I was thinking back about it before I started reading it this week, I was like, yeah, I remember they have like one quick moment and then all of a sudden this plane's down and Spencer's gone. But there's actually a few chapters of things happening and like talking talking about how it's been six months and here's stuff that's happened in the six months and an adjustment of people who have power because now Cobb is the man is in the charge. Admiral. And so it's like, okay, all right, I can stand beside that. But also they've updated one of the prime stations Outside that are in the, the shell mm-hmm. and they're able to use that as like an in-between space to set up Sorties. for fights mm-hmm. that are happening out in the actual space. Yep. And people are learning how to fight in no gravity space, right. no drag, no resistance. 
wow, it doesn't fly the same. No kidding. Yeah. No sound, I feel like, is a big one. At least it would be for me. Yeah. So we actually do get some scenes there with just reorienting ourselves in that world before suddenly Spence is like, I can hear something. Yeah, she's going crazy again is what they make it seem to be, but... And it turns out that there is another Cytonic who is crashing down on their planet. Well, I don't think she meant to crash down. I, she doesn't have AI to get through the defense shields. fields. Yeah, the shells or whatever. Well, the yeah, the like gun turret placements, basically the automated ones. And so like she just gets really jacked up because all of a sudden she's there. And then it's like, well, uh, I need to get to that planet. So let's just go this way. And mistakes were made. Yeah. It seems like when Spencer gets to them that they're dying and they are basically sending Spencer on their mission instead of them and saying, basically, you need to go here. Telepathically, which is the coolest part about it. Through the Cytonic communication network. Communication or whatever you want to call it. And so Spencer basically looks at Jerkface and is like, so... Am I doing this thing? He's like... Because I don't have time to decide otherwise. I guess you're doing this thing because the connection that they made was so fleeting. I was going to say weak, but that works. And so it's like you have to decide if you want to go do her mission or not in like two seconds. And at least she asked Jerkface because I feel like book one, Spencer would just be like out of there. Deuces. And he's like... Technically, it's within the rules for me to tell you to go, but this is also not a great situation, so bye. Right. And they kiss. How did you feel about that? I, so, like, through the whole first book, I saw them growing together, so, like, I wasn't shocked by it. And I'll be completely honest, like, they kind of lead you to believe that they kind of already are, like, in, like, some type of feelings with each other. Well, yeah, I think it's definitely set up where, like, over those six months between book one and book two, like you can tell that there was something there, but like they didn't act on it until that moment. There was some foreshadowing going on. We'll just leave it at that. Very quickly too, because that happened super fast. Yeah. Oh, something else that happens at the beginning of the book that I really enjoyed is that we see that they've incorporated Imbot in their fleet. And so like, there's someone else taking care of Imbot and Spencer, when she gets off of him originally on the prime platform, is like he's in one of his moods and then the tech is like, when is he not? Yeah. So like it was just a funny moment. Yeah, it, it definitely lends to the humor of Mbot. And as you'll know, if you haven't listened to our podcast, Larry loves sassy AI. I do. Mbot is one of my favorites. Also, we do find out that they've learned a lot since they set up at the Prime platform. They've gotten some information from the computers there, and they're able to find out about something called the Superiority, which is like the main governing body for the multiple galaxies in the universe. Well, they kind of already knew about the Superiority from the first book when she does like the download hack or whatever. But But they do learn more about like how they're set up and why the humans are on this preserve and that sort of thing. Yeah. You also learn eventually after like some cracking of information about the Delvers. Yes. Which you kind of get some information on in the first third of the book. Like you really don't grasp like what they are exactly, but you grasp that they just are overpowering. Like they're just the overlord style power more or less. 
But not even really that because they're not lording over anything. It's more along the lines of they are a very destructive force that if they decide they want to deal with you, they will. And then they just kind of disappear into the abyss again. Into the nowhere, which is where Cytonics go when they're traveling faster than light speeds. And so Spensa follows the directions by Alonic and goes outside of Starsight, which is where the things happen. Where the main plot happens, where the main governing body is at the planet that they are on. She's contacted because they want to know who she is. Why are they flying into their airspace and that sort of thing? And she has to start her spy job. Right. So Mbot is basically putting on like a hologram over her and the ship to make it look like Alonic and Alonic's ship. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully I'm saying Alonic right. Otherwise we're having a good old time. It's Alonic. Is it? Okay. It's spelled out in the book. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Spence ends up landing where they tell her to go, and she meets up with an alien who is basically going to show her around to her embassy where she's going to be staying and that fun stuff. So it is interesting to see how Spence interacts with Kuna and everyone else on the planet because, like, She's never done a spy mission before. She doesn't know what she's doing. She's never been around anything but humans and the Krell. So it's like, what is she going to know how to do anything? Well, and this book kind of highlights how little the humans actually know about... Anything? Anything outside their own defenses, basically. Yeah. And so there's so much just political stuff going on and so much of like intergalactic communication and intergalactic interactions and trades and everything else like this is the book that really beefs up the sci-fi part of this sci-fi but we do meet one of the krell who are super powerful winzik and he's got a little human friend which she's like what the hell is happening yeah because as far as she understands, there's just preserves of humans in the universe and like that's all they have. Somehow this one though is like powerful enough to have her freedom. But she is very well controlled and contained and sort of like almost brainwashed into believing like humans are garbage and it's, you know, I'm very lucky to be here to be controlled and that sort of thing, which is weird. Not great. Yeah, it's definitely strange for sure. And we definitely see Spence's kind of hackles raised at this whole, like, concept of this human being controlled by the Krell specifically. Right. Because, like, that's her enemy. Right. Like, how could you work with the enemy of humans? Just doesn't make any sense. And we do see that both Spencer and Imbot connect into the data net for the planet, and suddenly they're learning things left and right about... How everything works with the superiority. And all the different types of aliens and universes and everything that she didn't know no, before. All. Right, right. And she has Mbot compose a message that has an encrypted message within it about this is what happened to your pilot and I'm here doing her mission and please don't give me away to the superiority. Yeah. But we also learned something weird about Mbot that we hadn't learned yet, which is that if Mbot tries to... Lie? No, it like try to duplicate themselves, like try to make another form of themselves, they start this clicking business. And they shut off. And power down and come back on. It's like A hard reboot. 
well, that's not fun. Like, even just talking about possibly making a copy of himself for any length of time. Just instant power off. Instantly, that happens. It definitely happens at a couple inconvenient times. Yeah. But I believe we see her go for her first day on the mission, trying to join up, join up with the superiority and join their, like, Training mission thing. Air Force. Yeah. And we see a couple different species of races, different races. Yeah. And one of my favorites were what she was calling like fox gerbils. Yes. Or kitson. Yeah. They are kitson. But when she first sees them, it's like a fox gerbil in her brain. That's how she describes it. I'm like, well, that's just adorable. And I want 12. Yeah. It takes that many, if not more, to fly things. Yeah, I think there's something like 50-something in that one ship. Yeah. But, like, they're super cute. They are, and they also love weapons, which is more the reason for you to like them, right? Exactly. Yeah. But you really get to see some of the other, like, issues that certain species have with members of the superiority. Like, mm-hmm. you can tell that, like, the four or, sorry, five groups of races that are, like, primary members of the superiority are, like, just abusing all these other smaller planetary systems. What they're systems. calling lesser yeah, ones. Yeah, correct. And so it's just, like... And the superiority are able to do this because they control the methods of travel. And so because of that, they just kind of lord this power over what they consider to be lesser species or whatever. Right. So if you want to be able to trade all the way across the universe, the only way you're going to do it is by us. Right. The irony is they claim to be a peaceful group of people and it's just like... Well, oppressing other people. Yeah. That sounds a little too familiar. Let's move on from that. Right. We see the first test that the superiority give to all the pilots who want to join their air force is kind of more brutal than expected because it's live fire happening and you have to just survive for 30 minutes. People call them out pretty quickly, but... They go ahead and do it anyway, and they end up losing 12 pilots throughout this whole thing, which makes Spencer pretty angry, because she is pretty military-based. But she also understands the process of training new pilots. She she was upset because a lot of the people that died were pilots that were not trained in battle by any means, or ex- barely any experience flying, let alone, you know, combat. Right, right. But... Anyone who's gone through actual training will tell you you don't start with live fire. And so people have a problem with this, and a lot of people have a problem just staying alive. And your options are to either go down in a ball of flames or you can put on your emergency lights and they won't shoot you and they'll drag you out. And, and then you're you done. You don't get to be in the Air Force. Right. Because they don't want people who will back down in the face of danger. Right. Which sounds a little too familiar for Spencer, probably. Needless to say. But she realizes during this that her job isn't to rack up kills. It's just to survive. And so she ends up helping the Kitson and another alien that... Is of the original primary races? Yes. It's a little weird, though, because it's not really a person. It's that, that in-between point. stage of it being the mom and the dad and how they... Procreate, it's kind of strange. Yeah, so basically they create a draft of a person and then the draft gets to go around existing for a few months to decide whether or not there's a good Poppy. child to have. Right. And so 
she ends up saving the two of them with the help of someone who I don't know that you've even learned their name yet, but there's just someone in a that's taking control over a drone and use that to help the kids in. Yeah, I don't know the name, but I do know the, of the person flying the drone. I right. just don't know the, anything other than that at this point. Yeah. Because it immediately went back into hiding after doing the saving thing. Right, right. That's more or less where I wrapped up, other than, like, the cantina scene. Or I mean, I do like the canteen scene, because you do see a bunch of different species interacting and all their different, like, food options and, like, how how weird some of them are for yeah, humans, you know? right. But before that happens, I do believe there is a moment where a pilot is about starts ready to beat up Wisnik or Winzik. Winzik and just like going off. Yeah. And rightfully so. They're kicked out of the Air Force yeah, because they're, they're too, too aggressive. aggressive. Like you just shot live fire at like 500 pilots. Are you kidding me? Yeah. And of course, out of those 500 pilots, I think the only uh, ones that ended up remaining were like. 10%, so like 50, 52 or something like that. Yeah. So like when your first test brings you down to 10%, like maybe there's something wrong with your test. Right. Possibly. But they do have this claim of like being super peaceful and anyone who's too aggressive, it's like a clutching my pearls kind of moment. Like, oh goodness, my, my. Right. But the good thing about that one alien, the Burl, going off on Winsick is that Spencer can't go off on him. Because someone else already is. And so that protects her and keeps her in her spot with their Air Force. Otherwise, they would say she's too aggressive. Well, she made a comment, but kind of just like bitter cheek in yeah. the process. But we do learn a little more about Morimer. And we do learn more about Hesho. And we see them all gathered together, have lunch, that sort of thing. But an important thing that happens at the end of that is that Spencer can hear and by here, I mean, like, cytonic here. Something happening a little ways down the hall from the canteen. And so she excuses herself. To go use the restroom. To figure out what what's going on. And she finds that Braid is speaking with a group of Dion officials as well as Winsick. And that's where you left off. Yep. But needless to say, I'm excited to go into the second third of the book, and I will probably start a little bit of it tonight. We'll see. Because the reality is, I still have two more days of work before we get two days off. Yes. But I do think there's a lot more fast-paced stuff happening in the next two thirds I think you'll really enjoy, especially the last part. Yeah. So I'm hoping you'll be able to dig in and really enjoy it. Me too. But... We will see you guys next week for another sports episode. And in the meantime, make sure you guys are rate reviewing and subscribing, as well as checking out all of our social media, which will be linked in the show notes. Bye, guys. Bye. <laughs> you always drink your water, the funniest sounding thing in the entire world. And it's so funny, like, I can drink water right here in front of, like, the mic, and you don't even hear it. But, like, for you, you're like, go, 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 go. I'm not doing anything. I'm just pouring it into my mouth. I don't know why it makes those sounds. I give up. I'm done. I quit.